This morning we are going to uh, finish the book of Ruth. Quick little book and um, just to give you the breakdown for those of you who uh, are maybe new to the church as of this year. Uh, we usually spend the last Sunday in November before uh, the season of Advent starts. We have uh, a sermon on the state of the church, just recapping some aspect of our life together as a church from the last year and some hope and prayer for God to work among us in the new year. Uh, so next Sunday we'll have that state of the church address. Uh, and then the following Sunday we'll begin uh, the church season of Advent. And we'll be looking specifically in the month of December at Matthew chapter 1 and at the genealogy of Jesus there as he is the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of God. But this morning we're going to turn in the book of Ruth one final time and to the last chapter, chapter 4, and to the last five verses, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Uh, as the narrator of the book of Ruth has told the whole story, uh, he has really kept us zoomed in the whole time on this immediate localized story of just a few major characters, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, uh, and, and just a few events that have happened there. But now in the last five verses, as we close, He's going to zoom back out and show us the significance of this little tiny story we've just read and show us where it fits into the broader story of God's plan for the world. So this morning we're going to read Ruth 4, verses 18 through 22, the last five verses. Let's give our attention now. Brothers and sisters, these are the very words of God. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And may God now add his blessing to our hearing and the preaching of his word this morning. Uh, I want to start this morning with just asking a question. Uh, and I will ask for hands to go up if, if this applies to you. How many of you in this room have ever, uh, in your life, in some point that you can remember, uh, done a large-scale puzzle, right? Some kind of a big puzzle, right? More than 100 pieces, let's say that. Yeah, okay. How many of you enjoy doing puzzles? Like, you, you really like that? Okay, great. Yeah, most of you. So it seems like most of you who did puzzles actually enjoyed them. Uh, you didn't just do them out of habit or something like that. Uh, I have done only one puzzle that I can actually remember in my adult life, and it was at the start of COVID, uh, right when everything shut down and we were all stuck in our homes and businesses weren't open and all this kind of stuff. And I got bored and I decided to buy and put together a puzzle. And it took me several days because I had never done it before. Uh, but I put together this puzzle uh, of the original theatrical release poster of Star Wars, The New Hope, uh, Star Wars, A New Hope. And so, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker's on there and the X-Wing and lightsabers and all this kind of nerdy stuff, but I loved it. and It was very uh, enjoyable for me. I actually really liked it until I was almost finished with the puzzle. I liked it right up until the very end, because as soon as I got towards the very end, I realized that I was actually missing a piece. One of the pieces at some point, probably when I had unpacked the thing, uh, had fallen under my dining table uh, there in our old house, and I couldn't find it. I didn't know where it was. It took me about two days of searching the dining room when I had time uh, to actually find this final remaining piece and be able to put it into that one last blank spot. It was really frustrating because I had enjoyed the whole process up until that last moment, right? When I realized there was this gaping void 
in my picture of Star Wars that was missing this one piece. Up until that point, I had not realized the significance of that one little piece. But as soon as I saw its absence, and I saw that empty space where every other space had been filled in, I realized how significant that one little piece really was. And in fact, probably the most joy I got out of doing that puzzle was finally finding that last piece and putting it in and completing the full picture. Our life is often like that. When you and I are bogged down in the humdrum, the sort of morass of daily life, it's hard for us to get back and see the big picture of what's really going on. You look at your life and you ask questions. Does my life matter? Do the things that I'm doing today with my life matter at all? How could my little life and the things that I'm doing fit into God's eternal plan to save the world? What we have learned from Ruth's story and what we really learned in these last five verses today is that every piece in God's puzzle is significant. There is not a single piece in the puzzle of God's plan of salvation that can be left out. If it's left out, it's like that gaping hole that I saw in my one final missing piece. That piece that was so small and so insignificant looking on its own gained an ultimate significance when fit into the bigger picture of that Star Wars poster. And so too, your life and mine, they're very small. And on the grand scale, you might think very insignificant. But when they're put into their proper place, when God places your little story of life into his bigger plan of salvation for the world, you realize just how significant those little lives really are. That's what we see in the end of Ruth's story. In these final verses, as I said, the narrator zooms back out for us. He zooms back out. He has spent the whole story honed in. We haven't even left the town of Bethlehem, right? And we, we really haven't even gone to Bethlehem proper. We've really been in a field, maybe in a house. The setting is very small. The characters are very limited. It's a very zoomed-in scope story. But now in the final words, he zooms back out and he shows you just exactly where Ruth's little story that you've just considered and read fits into the bigger picture of God's plan of salvation. He does this by doing what many biblical writers do. He gives you a genealogy. He gives you a family tree. And he gives you a family tree that goes back to a man named Perez, who is the immediate son of Judah by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It's an interesting story in and of itself. I'll let you read it this afternoon in Genesis 38. He goes down through men like Nashon, who was the leader of Judah when Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus. You can see his name listed in Numbers 1, verse 7. And he goes down to Boaz, a character that we've just finished reading about. And we see all the significance of his story and how he fits into his marriage with Ruth. But now the narrator, writing from a future perspective, having looked back at that story, he shows you how Boaz and Ruth gave birth to this young son, Obed. And Obed gives birth, or he has this son named Jesse. And Jesse has this youngest son of his, a man that probably you know well, his story, King David. You remember how we, we talked about at the very beginning of this sermon series, when we first looked at Ruth, 
What is the setting of this book? It takes place in the time of the Judges, a time of spiritual and social anarchy. And in the book of Judges, three times, it gives us the problem and why this is happening. It says, for example, Judges 21, verse 25, the problem is there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This time of spiritual and social anarchy is resulting from a lack of centralized authority under God. And the answer is to have a king installed in Israel by God to shepherd his people. And David is not the first king, but you might say the first king actually after God's own heart. Saul is the first king, but Saul is chosen by the people. David is God's choice for king. And so the writer, the narrator of the book of Ruth is showing you how Ruth's story leads all the way down to the coming of King David, who is the answer, at least temporarily, to that problem of social and spiritual anarchy in the period of the judges. In the time of Ruth, they would say there's no king in Israel, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, but then David comes and God installs David as king over his people to shepherd them and guide them, and now there is a king in Israel. And people are no longer at least in some sense, doing what's right in their own eyes. Now they are submitting themselves to the Lord. There was a solution that was needed to that anarchy of the judge's time. And God's solution, God's answer, is to raise up a king to lead his people. Ruth's little story that we've just finished, this little story of a desperate woman in a desperate situation, being delivered by a romance with this man named Boaz, that little story fits right into God's story of providing a king for his people Israel. God ultimately answers the problem of the time of judges. Now what I want you to notice is that Ruth fits into that answer, but Ruth does not provide that answer. Ruth is not the one who fixes the problem, right? God is the one who fixes the problem by using people like Ruth, like Obed, like Jesse, and like David. Friends, I don't have to tell you that you and I live in a time and in a setting that is increasingly troubled. And you might turn on the news or scroll your social media and see a headline, or maybe you're on Twitter or, some, or X now it's called, something like that. And you're looking at all these problems that the world has, and you're sitting there going, how do we fix this? What do I need to do to fix this problem? What do I need to do to solve the Russian-Ukraine crisis? What do I need to do to fix the problems in Israel? How can we possibly solve the drug epidemic in the United States of America? And already, you've gotten off to a faulty start. You're asking the wrong question. The question is not, what do I need to do to fix this? The question is, how can I be used by God for him to fix this? You, Christian, are not responsible for fixing the world's problems. You are not responsible for correcting everything that's wrong with the world today. First of all, you, you couldn't do it. And, and second of all, uh, even if you tried, you would mess it up. You're not responsible to fix the world's problems. I know we have 24-7 news today. I know that you can sit there and, and just have your brain filled with every single issue going on all around the world today. 
and you're presented with it as if you have some control over it, but the reality is you don't. You can't fix those problems. You can't fix the drug epidemic in these United States. You can't fix the global conflicts that we see in the world today. You ultimately can't even fix uh, the problems of your own family life, the problems in your neighborhood. You ultimately can't fix those by yourself. But God can, and God will. You aren't responsible to fix the, world pro the world's problems, but God will take care of those things. We learn from Ruth that although Ruth doesn't provide the answer, she is a part of God's solution. She is a part of God's plan to bring a king to shepherd Israel, his people. And so although we learn you are not responsible to fix the world's problems, Christian, you are responsible to be useful to God. You are responsible to do the right thing, to submit your life to God. And to trust him that he is going to use your life for his purposes. Think about Ruth and, and what she knows in the context of her own story. Ruth does not know these last five verses. These last five verses are probably written after Ruth is dead. And Ruth doesn't probably foresee how God is going to use her descendants to bring about the coming of King David and the restoration of, of order and, and, uh, and, and the lack of chaos and the doing away with the anarchy in Israel. She doesn't know how God is going to use her little story in his big plan of salvation. But what does she know? She knows that she has a mother-in-law who needs her help. She knows that out in the fields of Bethlehem, she can go and work and find food. She knows that Boaz is a virtuous man and that he's capable of redeeming her, and that if she can marry him, she can have redemption for her and her mother. She doesn't need to know everything. She doesn't need to necessarily know how she is going to fit into this big, huge God's plan of salvation. But she does know a few things, and she is responsible for how she behaves in those. Christian, you are not responsible to fix the world's problems. The problems of the world do not rest on your shoulders. But you are responsible to do the right thing, to submit your life to God. My, at our former church, we had a uh, elder, one of our, our shepherding elders, one of the elder who was responsible for me and Olivia uh, on behalf of the session. And our shepherding elder and his wife had this great saying that they would tell their kids. And it boiled down to just do the next right thing. So what are we going to do today? How am I going to live life today? Well, we're going to do the next right thing. So whatever's presented for you on this Sunday, whatever comes before you tomorrow on Monday, whatever comes for you the rest of this week, every day of your life, what's the right thing to do now? And then when you're done with that, what's the next right thing to do then? Christian, you're not responsible to fix the world's problems, but we are responsible before God by his Spirit's power in us to do the next right thing, to submit our life to God. Ruth knew that her mother-in-law needed help. She knew that she could help her mother-in-law by going and working in those fields and collecting food. She knew that Boaz was a virtuous man and that if she could arrange to be married to him, then she could have redemption from her poverty for her and Naomi, her mother-in-law. That's all she knew. She didn't know the big picture, but she was responsible to act on what she did know. And God used her little actions 
to accomplish his big picture plan of salvation. If we zoomed out even further, we could see how Ruth's story fits into the bigger picture. Uh, the narrator, likely living in the time of David, he could only see so far. He can only see how it's come down to the time of David, but we know the bigger picture. We know that Ruth's story ultimately fits into God's eternal plan of salvation to save the world through Jesus Christ. Even when King David came and, and ruled over Israel, if you know your Bible stories, you know that David himself was also a sinner. In fact, the confession of sin that we did today is from Psalm 51, which is David's confession of sin after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite. David came, but David was still a sinner. He was a sinner after God's own heart. He was a sinner who, in many ways, sought to submit himself to the Lord. And even when he sinned, he confessed his sin and he repented from it and he turned back to the Lord. But he was a sinner nonetheless, and he was not capable of bringing a full salvation for God's people. David himself was not the Savior. David needed a Savior, and God provided that Savior in his son, Jesus Christ. I said that in the month of December for the uh, church season of Advent, we'll be considering the first coming of Christ, and we'll look at Matthew chapter 1. And in both Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, the two genealogies of Jesus Christ, you will find Boaz and Ruth's story listed in both. In fact, in Matthew 1, verse 5, Matthew will explicitly name Ruth as the mother of Obed, the, the grandmother of Jesse, the great-grandmother of David. I want you to really think about that for just a moment. God's, God's plan of salvation, this eternal plan that the Bible says God has had in his mind from before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1, verse 4 says that before the foundations of the world, God chose you in Christ Jesus. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he is described as the lamb slain from before the foundations of the world. God had always had this plan in mind of, of an eternal salvation for the world that would be lost to sin through his son. He would come and he would save the world from sin. And we see throughout Bible history that it's a plan that encompasses every aspect of world history. By the power and the decree of God and his providence, everything that happens in the world leads to the first coming of Christ. And even today, since that time, every little part of world history has been geared towards the spread of his church, leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. Everything that happens in world history is geared towards God's purposes of saving the world from sin and bringing it into new and eternal life. And smack in the middle of that huge, insurmountably vast story, you find little people like Ruth. You find little people like Naomi. Struggling in daily life. Just trying to get by. Just trying to do the next right thing. But God takes it up and uses it. And He achieves His own purposes through them. You may not see it now. Moms, you may not see how those diaper changing situations are feeding into God's eternal plan of salvation. Fathers, you may not see how that moment taken to spend some time with your kids is feeding into God's eternal plan of salvation. You may not see how your daily family prayers, husbands praying for your wives, wives praying for your husbands, are feeding into and achieving God's eternal plan of salvation. You may not see it. You don't need to see it. It's enough to know that God knows. That God knows what He is doing. 
And that God can take the little puzzle piece of my life and fit it right where it needs to be in his big puzzle plan of salvation. The things in your life, Christian, matter. Your life matters. The things you do, the way you behave, the way you speak to each other in your homes, the way you interact with your neighbors, the things you choose to do and say, they matter. I know you and I live in a day today where where you are effectively told that as a human being, there is nothing of inherent value about you, that you are essentially a cog, a very insignificant cog in the grand machine of a godless materialistic universe. That's the lie that you are told, but God's word says something very different. God's word says something very different. I can remember as a new Christian wrestling with this reality because I had grown up in a household where we were told that in the grand scheme of things, our lives were very, very small. And that's true. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 8 wrestles with that. Lord, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take notice of him? There's no question that in the grand scheme of things, our lives are incredibly small. But that does not mean that they're insignificant or that they don't matter. The world and the flesh, the devil may say that, look, even if God exists, right? Even if we grant you that, that God exists, surely he is far too busy to be concerned with you and your little life and the problems that you have. Right? God, God's important. He's got other stuff to deal with, right? Do you know how hard it must be to keep all the cosmos spinning in their proper order? To keep all things handling together? To keep the universes from imploding on each other? To keep life sustained on this tiny little blue ball? Do you understand how hard it must be for God to do that? Surely he's too busy to think about you. That's the lie. What does Christ say? Christ says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, that every hair on your head is numbered. God knows every hair that's on your head. That's more than your spouse ever did for you. Olivia's never counted all my hairs. Some of you might have an easier job with that with your spouses than others, but the reality is God knows every hair on every head. He knows when a sparrow falls out of a tree. Nothing is ever done in this world without the express foreknowledge, decree, will of God. He knows all things. He sees all things, big and small. And ultimately, I want you to notice that that temptation that lie that you're being fed, that God is too busy to possibly take notice of you, it's ultimately a a scornful attack on who God ultimately is. What are we really saying if we believe that lie? We're ultimately saying God isn't powerful enough to take notice of little things, right? That somehow God is limited in his ability to be attentive. That's the lie. And it's insidious, right? Because it makes God look so big God's God's too big to take care of your life. God's too big to take notice of your life. But what it's really saying is God can't do that, right? God has a limited attention span. Maybe he's got a little ADHD and he's not able to focus in on your life because there's too many other big things going on. That's a lie. God's not like that. God is not limited in his ability. God is not limited in his focus. He can do whatever he wants. He does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. The devil comes and he says to you, your life is not significant. And Jesus comes and says that every name of his people is recorded in the book of life. 
every name of every one of an uncountable number of people. Book of Revelation says it's an insurmountable number, right? John doesn't even bother to give you the number of the redeemed in heaven on the last day. He couldn't do it. But the Bible also says that in the book of the Lamb's book of life, every name is written. Every name is recorded. Jesus did not just die for an unnamed, unknown number of people who may or may not believe in him. He died for specific people. Every name is written down. Every name is recorded. It's an insurmountable number. It's a number that no human mind could possibly fathom. But every name is laid down in the Lamb's book of life. Written in the very blood of Jesus is your name. Not just Christians in general, but you. Your life matters. It matters to God. It mattered enough to God to give His only Son. It mattered enough to God for Jesus to come into the world and die on a cross and be raised again from the dead. So that anyone who believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 5, the one who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out His name from the book of life. But I, this is Jesus talking, I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Jesus not only knows your name, Christian, He not only knows every aspect of your life, he knows exactly how to use your life in his big picture plan of salvation. But he says that on the last day, he's going to confess your name. Not just Christians in general, not just all who believed in me. Keith Ginn is going to have his name confessed by Jesus at the last day. Your life, your name, if it is in the book of life, Jesus says, I will confess it before my father and his angels. He knows your name. He knows every aspect of your story. He is using your life to accomplish his big picture purposes. And on the last day, you will be acknowledged personally by him as one of his own. Christian, if your life's desire, if, if the burning, beating passion of your heart is to glorify Jesus Christ, then the Bible says that nothing about your life is insignificant. Nothing about your life is wasted or without purpose. Even the littlest lives and the littlest stories like Ruth's when fit into God's puzzle, we realize their eternal significance. We realize that not one piece can be afforded to be left out. And Christian, not one piece will be left out. God will not lose any of his own. Jesus says that all those that the Father gives him will come to him. And that anyone who comes to him, he will by no means cast out. Not one person will be forsaken for whom Christ died. And every name that Jesus Christ has written in his Lamb's book of life, he will confess before the Father on the last day. That's ultimately what this table testifies to us. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, by faith, we profess, not because of us, but because of Jesus, my life matters. My life is significant. Not because of me, but because of Christ. Everything about my life is important to God. Important enough for Jesus to come and die for you, Christian. Important enough that Jesus lived every aspect of his life with perfect righteousness before God so that he could give you a perfect righteousness. Not every detail of Christ's life is recorded for us in the Gospels. Uh, at the time when the Gospels were written, as in today, paper is limited. 
It's expensive to write gospel accounts back in the day. Not every detail of Christ's life is recorded, but every detail of Christ's life mattered. And he did it all so that you might be saved. So that you might have eternal life through him. And every aspect of your life today, Christian, the big and the small, is building together according to God's perfect plan to spread his kingdom across the world, to spread the gospel into every corner of the globe until that day when every knee bows to Christ and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father until that day when Jesus comes back again. I don't know what we will know in heaven. We won't know everything. Only God can know everything. But I do believe that we will finally have that perfect zoomed out view and we'll be able to look at the tapestry of everything that God did in the history of the world. And Christian, if you're in Christ by faith today, I believe that you will be able to go into that insurmountably vast puzzle of how God worked all things together for his plan. And even just the littlest thread of your life, you'll be able to go and say, there's where I fit in. There's where God used me. All glory to Jesus. All glory to God for his perfect will and salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good word. Lord, thank you for the chance we've had to study the story of Ruth. And Lord, we ask that you would please put that word deep into our hearts. Lord, that you would uh, remind us of that reality as we face the challenges of the coming week. Lord, there are big problems and little problems. There are struggles that will come up that we don't even know about yet. Lord, help us to remember that you are using all things for your glory and for your eternal purpose. And Lord Jesus, by faith, help us to follow you Help us to simply, by your Spirit's power, always do the next right thing. To walk in your ways, to keep your commandments, to live according to your perfect example, that we might glorify you in all things. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.